You know, I read a blog post last week by the writer Stephen Pressfield. Uh, He says that when it comes to the opening and closing of any good story, keep two things in mind. First, the opening and closing images of a story should look as alike as reasonably possible. But at the same time, the closing should be as far away as we can make it in emotional and narrative terms from the opening. Uh, think of just about any good book or good movie that you've, you've watched, uh, and this is probably true. Just one example, uh, I was thinking of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, the story by J.R.R. Tolkien begins in the Shire, the land of the hobbits. And after three lengthy books or movies, whichever you prefer, the story ends again in the Shire. But the hobbits return to the Shire completely and irreversibly changed from what they've just been through in this very long journey they've been on. The opening and closing scenes are similar, but and yet very far apart from each other in emotional and narrative terms. We get a little bit of this sense as we read the end of Ecclesiastes, as we read Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 8. The book ends in a similar way that it began with a similar refrain, but now we've been through a journey as we've walked through the preacher's thought experiment for these 12 chapters, and hopefully uh, we're not the same uh, as we were when we, when we first started. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 if you haven't already. The words will be up on the screen as well, and I'm going to start in, in verse 8. Hevel, hevel, says the teacher, everything is hevel. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole of humankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. T.S. Eliot once wrote that the end of the journey is to find oneself at the beginning again, only this time one understands it more fully. Uh, We read Ecclesiastes 12.8 and it feels like we're right back where we started. And yet, hopefully, we understand a bit more about our life of faith in relationship with the living God after having searched and pondered and questioned along the way. We've come to the end of Ecclesiastes, and the author once again asserts himself. Now remember, the last several weeks we've heard the words of the preacher, who's a character in the story. We hear his voice for most of the book, but an author introduces the the preacher in those first 11 verses of the book, and then he reasserts himself again. He concludes the book here in chapter 12, and he evaluates everything that the preacher has just said. Uh, So the author asserts himself here in verse 8 with some familiar words. Hevel of hevels, everything is hevel. 
the last of 40 or so hevels in the whole book. Remember, the Hebrew word hevel is often translated meaningless or vanity. A better translation might be enigma or paradox. The author and preacher both say that life doesn't always make a whole lot of sense. By beginning and ending in the same way with a statement about the hevel of life, the structure of Ecclesiastes reinforces the point he's trying to make, that there is nothing new under the sun. As it was before, so it is now, and so it always will be. All is hevel, all the time. And that's the main idea of this whole book of Ecclesiastes, that life is hevel under the sun. We end up right back where we, we began. The author helped us journey through the preacher's thought experiment. The preacher looked at all of life and asked, what do we have of lasting and meaningful value? And now we know that that work is hevel. There's nothing for us to gain from all our restless toil under the sun. Uh, we learned that human wisdom is hevel because uh, whether you're wise or foolish, you're still going to die in the end. He says there are great benefits of wisdom. You know, it's much better than folly for sure, but it still has its limitations. We know that pleasure is hevel. Alcohol, sex, money, none of it ultimately satisfies More is never enough. And the list goes on and on. This is not to say we'll never find joy in this life. The preacher says we can find some good things in life, like a good meal, uh, a loving spouse. But everything mentioned above, pleasure, work, wisdom, when they're put in their proper place, they too can bring joy. But they all have their limitations. We're supposed to read this book and see how hevel life is without God. And see how little joy there is under the sun if we try to leave our creator out of his universe. And by the time we get to the end of the book, we have to admit, I think the author has proved his case. That nothing in our search has led us home. Hevel of hevels, all is hevel. So why does the author go through all of this trouble to tell us that all of life is hevel? He gives us a clear purpose statement in verse 12. He says his words are like goads. Now, what on earth is a goad? I realize that goad is not a word that is very familiar with most of us suburbanites in the 21st century. But a goad is a staff with sharp nails embedded in it that was used by shepherds in the ancient world to keep animals on a straight path. Sharp nails on the end of a staff. Can you imagine being poked by something like that? That has got to hurt. In our passage, the author uses a goad, a familiar tool to his audience, to describe the words of the wise. Ecclesiastes, he says, is the Bible's cattle prod. The author tells us that the preacher's words might hurt when we hear them. But he's trying to get us to move in the right direction towards greater wisdom and knowledge. These words are here to help us navigate through life. Uh, It says here they're given to us by one shepherd. Some translations have shepherd capitalized or they point to to that in in an alternate reading in the footnotes. Because most scholars would say that the shepherd here is God himself. So God gives these words of the wise to us for our benefit. The Bible is not just supplying information, it is accomplishing something. 
As we observe later in verse 11, the collected sayings of the wise are compared to firmly embedded nails. A firmly embedded nail helps to provide a foundation and strength and firmness. And in the same way, God's word provides a foundation for all of life's activities, a basis for a responsible lifestyle. God makes himself known through his word. The word of God is powerful. As Hebrews 4.12 tells us, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Friends, sometimes when we're confronted with the very words of God himself, They're like swords cutting through and judging our thoughts and our attitudes. Sometimes when our sinful hearts are confronted with the word of God, it hurts. So friends, when the goad bites, resist the temptation to reach for the painkillers. Because oftentimes we want to avoid any pain whatsoever. We want to avoid the goad at all costs. But don't miss a golden opportunity to allow God to use his word to speak truth into your life and to train you in godliness. Although the goad hurts, the shepherd who uses the goad knows what's best for his animals. The goad might hurt, but it would hurt even more if his animals strayed off the path and were attacked by a bear or a lion. And just as the cattle driver does not use the goad without purpose, our heavenly father knows how to use a goad as well. And he uses it with great purpose in our lives. God's word sometimes hurts. But God knows what's best for his people. As the shepherd of our souls, God uses Ecclesiastes to prod us into spiritual action. So, reflect back on the last couple of months. What has God been saying to you through the book of Ecclesiastes? What in your life needs to change as a result of what you've heard over the course of this summer? Are there places where you have a distorted view of yourself or a distorted view of God or a a distorted view of your expectations on how life ought to go in this world that Ecclesiastes has exposed in you along the way? So the preacher's words are like a goad. Their purpose is to prod us and to poke us and to help us to reach the conclusions that the preacher and the author reach about life. Throughout his whole thought experiment, the preacher deconstructs everything that we could possibly place our hope in as we live in this world. The preacher's words push us to expect lasting satisfaction, not in money or pleasure or work or anything else in this life but only in the goodness of God. And if we're tempted at all to find our identity or place our hope in any of those places, the preacher shows us that we will be left wanting. The preacher removes all of the scaffolding of our lives, anything that we might try to stand on, so that all we have left is God, and we are forced to answer the question for ourselves, is God alone enough for me? Is God alone enough? enough. The author says, look at the preacher's experiment. Nothing satisfies. It's as if the court has heard all the testimony. Uh, The evidence has been presented, and the judge announces all has been heard. The time has come. We must draw our conclusions. 
the preacher has let us hear the testimony of human experience for 12 chapters. And of everything that could happen under the sun, could, it find, uh, could he find satisfaction in that? And what's the final verdict? What conclusion are we to draw from all of this? That our hevel lives retain a God-saturated purpose. Fear God and keep his commandments, he says. The attitude of fearing God should result in the action of keeping his commandments. The one leads to the other. Uh, The author looks at the preacher's teachings and the prospect of a life that is hevel under the sun and leads us to a foundation that we can stand on. The preacher used the words, remember your creator, at the beginning of chapter 12. The author here calls us to fear God and to keep his commandments. This is the place to stand on amid the mysteries and enigmas of life. When Hevel gets the best of us, when life doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And from here, we can embrace life with joy and feasting. Remember, that's the tension that this book explores, the tension between a life that is hevel and the call that we feel to, to enjoy life, to experience it in all of its joy. At the end of the day, it's our fear of the Lord that allows us to live in this tension between a life that is hevel under the sun and the need to enjoy life's every precious moment. Fearing God and keeping his commandments is what enables us <clears throat> is what enables us to live with hevel without being overwhelmed by it. Well then, so fear God and keep his commandments, and then he gives us two reasons for this. The first one he says, we should fear God and keep his commandments because this is the whole of humankind. Now our human our English translations add the word duty to that last phrase, but it's not there in the Hebrew. It says fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole of humankind. So it's not just our duty to fear God and keep his commandments. It is our, it is our very essence as human beings. God created us to stand in awe of him and to keep his commandments. That's God's design for every single person in this room. We ought to fear God and keep his commandments because that's the way to fulfill God's plan for us. It's the very best and fullest way of being human. We cannot fully be ourselves in everything that God has created us to be if God is not front and center in our lives, if God is not our obsession, and if God's glory is not our aim in life. The essence of being human is to fear God and to follow him wherever he leads us. Bible scholar Michael Eaton says, Fear of God is not only the beginning of wisdom, it is also the beginning of joy, of contentment, and of an energetic and purposeful life. The preacher wishes to deliver us from a rosy-colored, self-confident, godless life with its inevitable cynicism and bitterness and from trusting in wisdom, pleasure, wealth, and human justice or integrity. He wishes to drive us to see that God is there, that he is good and generous, and that only such an outlook makes life coherent and fulfilling. It is only in proper relationship with God in submission to him and his will that we find ourselves to be truly alive and fully human.
It is the whole of what it means to be human. That's the first reason the author gives for fearing God and keeping his commandments, that it's the essence of humankind. The second reason, it might sound a little bit surprising, the second reason is that judgment is coming. He writes, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Now, for many of us, judgment scares us and threatens us. But for the preacher, judgment blesses us. Because in judgment, a a distinction will finally be made between the righteous and the wicked. You know, at different points in his thought experiment, the preacher was confused by this often upside-down, hevel-filled universe that we live in. Where the righteous sometimes get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked often get what the righteous deserve. He says, that's hevel. It doesn't make any sense to me why the universe would function that way. But in judgment, the righteous and the wicked will stand before God and give an account. And they will hear from God what is true about them. In the play After the Fall by Arthur Miller, one of the characters, Quentin, has an intriguing take on judgment. Uh, Listen to some of his words. He says, for many years I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then what a good lover, then a good father. Finally, how wise or powerful. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that one moved on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what, I would be justified or even condemned. A verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. Which, of course, is another way of saying despair. So by Quentin's logic... If there is no God, then there is no judge. And if there is no judge, then there will be no final judgment. And if there is no final judgment, then human existence is a pointless litigation that ends in meaningless despair. The author of Ecclesiastes would have agreed. The author began and ended this spiritual quest by saying that everything is hevel. That without God, there is no meaning or purpose in life. Around every turn, the preacher tried to find satisfaction and meaning in life under the sun, and he just kept coming up empty. If there is no God and therefore no final judgment, then it's hard to see how anything we do really matters. But if there is a God who will judge the world, then everything matters. The world is, this world is not all there is. There is a God in heaven who rules the world. There is a life to come. And one day the dead will be raised and every person who has ever lived will stand before God and give an account. And when that day comes, it will become clear that there is eternal significance in everything that anyone ever thought or said or did. It will matter how we used our time. Did we squander it away with mindless entertainment and hedonistic, self-serving activities? Or did we seek to love God and to serve others? It will matter how we used our money. Did we squander it away, uh, spending it mostly on ourselves? 
Or did we seek to be generous with the resources that God provided for us in this life? It will matter what we did with our bodies. It will matter how we cared for our spouses and children. It will matter how we made an impact in our neighborhoods and workplaces for Jesus. The final message about Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters, but that everything matters. What we did, how we did it, and why we did it will all have eternal significance. Everything in the universe is subject to the final verdict of a righteous God who knows every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. The things we do and do not do today will all be seen in light of that final judgment. And if this is the case, if God will bring everything under judgment, then we need to make sure that we will be justified on that great day. The only way to be sure is to entrust our lives to Jesus Christ, who alone can save us. The Bible assures us that when that great day of judgment comes, those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ will not come into judgment, but will pass from death to life. Those who believe in Jesus no longer dread God's judgment. By faith, we will stand before our righteous judge and fall into the arms of a loving Savior. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And if he is the good shepherd, then the words of Ecclesiastes are his. Jesus is the one who calls us away from the hevel of life without God in order to find joy and meaning in his grace. He wants us to know that we are not just living under the sun. We are living under the son of God, who loves us and gave himself for us. We began this series by saying that Ecclesiastes has a negative function in the Bible. We said that Ecclesiastes It seeks to deconstruct everything you thought you knew about your life, your faith, and the world around you in order to reduce you to your knees by the end so that the good news, the gospel, can in fact become good news for you. And the author has done just that. He stripped away everything that we could possibly stake our hope in in order to drive us towards God. And we, we may be tempted to think that we, can, that we need something other than our relationship with God and his son, Jesus Christ, in order to prove worthy or credible under the sun. But after everything is said and done, the end of the matter, the grand purpose for which we live, the whole of our lives is this. Trust God. Surrender your life to him. Follow what he says. And this, right where you are. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Gracious God, we are grateful for you today. Uh, Grateful for this cattle prod of the Bible. uh, That pokes us and prods us and... uh, drives us to see, Lord, that uh, we are created to serve you. And that apart from you, we can do nothing 
that is lasting or satisfying in this world. Lord, do you help us to see uh, the, the lack of satisfaction that we can find in this world when we seek to serve ourselves or live for ourselves, we will, we will ultimately come up empty. But Lord, instead, you are pushing us and prodding us and directing us towards an abundant life. An abundant life that can only come when you are at the center of it. An abundant life that begins and ends with, with fearing you, with standing in awe and of you, of revering you, and keeping you on the throne of this universe and of our lives. Of acknowledging that you are God and we are not. And seeking to live our lives out of that reality. For you are a God that we can trust. For you, in your sovereignty, Lord, have the power to do anything for our good in our lives. In your wisdom, you know what is best for us. And in your goodness, you always want what is best for us. And so you are a God we can trust and to place our hope in. And Lord, by sending Jesus to us and through his life, death and resurrection and ascension, we may have life. And Lord, you call us to, to, to surrender our lives to King Jesus. That he may be Lord over everything that we do in our lives. That he may direct our steps. So Lord, help us even today. You know, those of us who haven't made that commitment. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would be poking and prodding them even now. And directing them to see that something is missing in their lives. And Lord, for many of us uh, who have followed Jesus for a long time, maybe for us it is thinking through in what ways have we uh, bought into the myth of religious self-fulfillment. That following, you know, maybe we believe that following Jesus is so that we can be happy and healthy in this life. But God, we know that there is so much more to the gospel than that. For you turn that whole system of belief on its head. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to see you today in all of your fullness and in all of your glory, especially as we come before the table to remember what Jesus has done for us. The sacrifice that he made for this is the foundation that as Christians we stand on. As Jesus' grace and mercy extended to us freely. Not because of anything we've done or anything that we deserve, but because of what he has done. So Lord, give us eyes to see you, 
this morning, and even more than that, the courage to follow you wherever you lead us. It's in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ that we do pray. Amen.